Father, thank you so much for your word. As we continue this journey through the book of Daniel, thank you for such glorious truth of this. Thank you for the songs that we sung this morning about confession and repentance. And that sinners have hope in you that they can come and see mercy and receive mercy if they believe. Father, help us now as we look at this and look at our own sin and look at this prayer of Daniel. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 9. Well, before we get there, in recent weeks we've covered chapter 7 and 8, which if you remember was very prophetic. 7 being a vision of four worldly kingdoms that would be judged by God. And we also saw a prophecy of a ruling and reigning Messiah. In chapter 8, we saw that it was a prophecy of the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek nation that would rise after it and their demise. We now come to Daniel chapter 9. And the first part of chapter 9, which we will cover today, covers a prayer that Daniel offered to God. And the last part of 9, which we will cover next week, covers more prophecy, which we will see, Lord willing, next week. Let's look at verse 1 of Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Daniel begins here by giving us another time reference. If you remember, chapter 9 is when King Ahasuerus was king. This king is the king of the Persian Empire. This is the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream of the giant statue of the chest and the arms. And of chapter 7 and 8, the bear and the ram of Daniel's vision. Daniel knew that these guys were coming because God has given him three different visions and these things come. This is the same king, Ahasuerus, that is called King Cyrus in Daniel chapter 6. Ahasuerus and Darius are just titles of the Persian kings. This is the same one. It's not a different person altogether. Daniel says here that he became king over the realm of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans being another name for the Babylonians. Again, we see prophecy being fulfilled. Look at chapter 2. Since we now know we're in the kingdom of the Medo-Persian Empire. In Daniel chapter 2, we see, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel, here a very aged man. If you remember at this time, Daniel is probably in his mid-80s. He looks at this events and he looks at the books. What are those books? Those books are the prophets, specifically Jeremiah. And he remembers what God told Jeremiah. And his question is, how long will we be captives in Babylon? How long will this last? Now that a new kingdom has arisen to overthrow Babylon. So Daniel starts doing the math and he looks at what Jeremiah says. And he remembers that Jeremiah says that it would be 70 years. Daniel does the math and he realizes 
You know what? It's been 70 years. The time that God said to Jeremiah had come. And Jeremiah chapter 25 is where Daniel gets this message. In Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 11, it says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And also in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so here's two places that Daniel investigates through the prophet Jeremiah, and he concludes, God told Jeremiah 70 years. Let's do the math. It's been 70 years. So God, how much longer will this last? We see Daniel taking confidence in the word of God. He recognizes God's word is given to Jeremiah. Yes, Daniel knew that Jeremiah was inspired and authoritative even for his day. Yes, Daniel believed in the inspiration and authority of the Bible. And he is seeking out hope and answers for his current day. And so what does Daniel do? Now that he knows 70 years, Jeremiah said that, there's a new kingdom here. What do we do? Daniel prays. That's what Daniel chapter 9 is all about. It's a prayer that God gives to Daniel, or Daniel gives to God. And many people have said this is the model prayer of the Old Testament. It's almost the equivalent of how Jesus taught the disciples to pray in the New Testament. You could learn a lot from Daniel's prayer in chapter 9. Look at verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God. By the way, if you're relying on the screens to have the Bible, this is why you ought to bring your Bible to church. If you don't have a Bible, then grab the one in the pocket in front of you. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel doesn't presume on the goodness and grace of God. He knows what God has promised. But he also knows that he will not demand it of God. This is the complete opposite attitude that many so-called name-it-and-claim-it preachers have today. They presume on the goodness of God and think they can bring things into existence just by saying it and manipulating God. Notice Daniel doesn't do that. He trusts in the promises of God, but he doesn't presume upon it. God God is not a genie in a magic lamp. God is not a cosmic vending machine that we could just go to him and get what we want. Daniel knows this very, very certainly. And he prays and he faces He turns his face to the Lord, seeking by prayer and pleading for mercy with sackcloth and ashes. What is Daniel doing here in the beginning of his prayer? He is seeking God in 
repentance. You see, the reason that Israel got into trouble to begin with was sin. They failed to turn from their sin to God. So God judged them by bringing Nebuchadnezzar. Seventy years later, Daniel, who is seeking God with his heart, is understanding that if we are ever going to get back to where we were, we must address what we did was wrong. We must address our sin and how we failed God. So he begins with repentance. He's in mourning over his sin and the sin of Israel. He expresses this by fasting and sackcloth and ashes. What is sackcloth? Sackcloth is a very rough material made from goat's hair. It was not comfortable to wear. It would scratch and be rough on your skin. Wearing it is an outward expression of how the person feels inwardly about their sin. They are sick of their sin. Sin has made them uncomfortable. They are identifying with sin as the one who did it. And outwardly, I feel terrible inside. I'm mourning over my rebellion to God and my failings to God. And I'm wearing this sackcloth to make me feel uncomfortable, to express outwardly how I feel on the inside. And also ashes. They would sit in ashes back in these days. The ashes signify desolation and ruin. Not only has sin made the person uncomfortable, like wearing sackcloth, but also sin brings destruction. Sin brings ruin. If you don't know that, just try it. Sin will destroy your life. It will destroy the lives of the people around you. Don't mess with sin. And here's Daniel thinking and repenting and thinking about the great mourning he has towards God for his people and for himself. Daniel is just not including the rest of the bozos in the nation that messed it up for the rest of us. Because remember, Daniel was a young man. He was a very young man when he came. If he's in his 80s now, he was a young teenager when he came over. Very young teenager, very young man. Daniel is sick of his sin, sick of the sin of his people. And he turns his face to God and he expresses this by sackcloth and ashes. So, what can we glean from this? We can glean that true repentance will be seen in the life of God's people with godly sorrow. It's impossible to have true repentance of sin without godly sorrow. You see, repentance is not just a remorse for what you did was wrong. Some people repent just because they got caught. Have you ever been there? You're not really remorseful because you did what was wrong and you hated what you did was wrong. And you hate the sin that you committed. No, you're just scared and upset that you got caught. That's not repentance. If repentance does not produce 
some kind of sorrow, this godly sorrow that leads to action. See, because it's just not feeling sorry for your sin either. Sorry that you have sinned or sorry that you did whatever the action. But it's sorrow that leads to action. That's how true repentance is seen in the life of a believer. Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritans, wrote on wrote in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, he wrote this. A woman may as well expect to have a child without pain as one can have repentance without sorrow. That is very profound. He also says that in this, this in the same book. Godly sorrow goes deep like a vein which bleeds inwardly. If you don't feel anything when you sin of sadness and sorrow, if you don't have any regard in your heart what your sin has done to God, if you don't have any sorrow leading you to repentance, it might be a sign that you need a heart check. It might be a sign that what you have professed verbally with your mouth is not really legit in here. Because true repentance is seen in godly sorrow that leads to action. That is the fruit. Repentance is the fruit of God working in the heart of a sinner, leading us to leave our sin, to hate our sin, and to run to God. The Holy Spirit will not allow a genuine Christian to live in sin and be comfortable. Maybe you're saying, Dan, I just don't have the joy that I used to have. Well, what's going on in your life? What sin are you clinging on to? What sin is lurking in your heart that needs to be crucified, confessed, forsaken, and given over to God? The Holy Spirit won't let you be comfortable, Christian. The Holy Spirit will not let that happen. But then that repentance, that godly sorrow, also leads to confession. Daniel's just not feeling sorrow in this passage. He's feeling, he, he acknowledges that by confessing it. The Hebrew word here for confess is to make known. To make known. There's no holding back. I'm not going to sugarcoat this, God. I'm making what I did known. I'm spilling my guts. I'm not trying to hide anything from you. The Greek word used for confess is very similar. It means to say the same thing about or to agree. What is real confession? It's not just coming clean. I mean, any, you can confess to what you did, but not truly confess. True confession is seen by agreeing with God that what you did was evil and wicked. True confession is to just come to the same conclusion about your sin that God does. And when we have done that, when we could say that what we did was wicked and vile and an offense to the glory of God, then that's where true confession begins, which leads to repentance and that godly sorrow. The opposite of godly sorrow is, heh, who cares? Or maybe just, my pride is hampered because of what other people may think about me. That's not repentance either. 
That's pride manifesting itself in different ways. If the worst thing you feel about your sin is how it ruined your reputation and how it makes you to look to other people, then you have not repented. Look at verse 5. Daniel confesses and he calls it out for what it is. He agrees with God. Look what he says. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. All right, Daniel, how many words more can you use? I mean, he is putting it all out there. We've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wicked, and we have rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Like we just said, Real confession must involve naming sin. When you confess your sins to God, don't just don't say, God, I have sinned. Tell God what you did. Name the sin. Call it out. If you are really going to agree with God, don't make it generic. Bring all the evidence to the table to the judge and call it out for what it is. What did Daniel say? We sinned and we done wrong. We acted wickedly and rebelled. But how? What is the standard of sin? How does Daniel know they've done wrong? How did you do this, Daniel? We turned aside from your commandments and rules. We rejected the prophets who told us your word. What is the standard for Daniel? God's word. The standard for sin, how do we define what sin is? Well, what has the Bible said? What has God said about this? If we have turned aside from what God says to our own definitions, then we have sinned. If we have done what God has told us not to do, if we don't do what God has told us to do, if we turn our side from what God says, we have sinned. The Bible defines what is right and wrong and wicked in this world today. Your opinion or analysis of cultural norms is meaningless if it is different or disagrees with God's word. Notice something else that Daniel does here. He doesn't compare himself with other people or his people with other people's. What does Daniel do? He compares himself to God. Look at verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness but to us open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers. Because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws. Which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. See how many times Daniel says, we have sinned, we have sinned, we have sinned. You know what Daniel's not doing here? Making excuses. Isn't that what we do? 
Sometimes I think our confession is nothing more than an excuse. We blame someone else, or we blame our circumstance, or we blame some. No, Daniel doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't even say to God, you know, God, it's been 70 years. You know, we did the crime. We did the time. It's time to let us go. No. What does he say? God, we deserve nothing but shame. You are right. We are wrong. You acted in judgment against us, and we deserved it. You see, true repentance has God's holiness as a standard. But also, what is Daniel doing? True repentance takes accountability for one's own sin. I sinned. It was me. Nobody else did this, God. The devil didn't make me do it. Right? I did it. I sinned. This is the opposite of what happened in the garden, right? What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Adam says to God, It was the woman you gave me. What is Adam doing there? He's not blaming Eve. He's blaming God. It was the woman. See, we stop there and we say, oh, he's blaming his wife. No, it was the woman you gave me. Who is he blaming? God. That's wicked. Adam did not take accountability. What does Eve say? Well, it was the serpent. Well, who put the serpent in the wilderness, in the garden? God. Neither of them takes accountability for what is due to them and for them. Here's the deal. If you know you've truly confessed and repented, you don't blame anyone else for your sin. You take ownership. Nobody but you. And he doesn't compare himself to anybody else. He didn't say, oh, you know, God, I was just a young man back in those days. I mean, all the leaders of the country, our kings and priests and prophets, they were the ones. Daniel includes himself in this sin as God's covenant people in Judah. He compares himself to God. And listen, friends, at the end of your life, you will not be judged compared to how other people live their lives. You'll be judged in how you measure up to a holy God. And friends, all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. This is the only answer. And this is what Daniel says. Lord, you are righteous. We are shameful. Look what else Daniel says. He doesn't say, God, you've been too harsh on us. He doesn't say, we could have got the message another way. No, 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 no. He doesn't say, God, can you give us a break? He says, God, you are righteous. You have acted righteously. Your judgments are just. You have driven us far from home. It's not your fault. We sinned. Maybe as you're reading and listening to these verses, you're comparing how you have confessed your own sin to God in the past, as I have. 
and realize how I have woefully fallen short at times. May we learn from this, brothers and sisters, to take accountability, to not compare ourselves to others, to truly agree with God, and to have godly sorrow, which leads to repentance. Look at verse 14, uh, 11, sorry. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. What is Daniel saying? God, you warned us this would happen. You said it was coming. You sent us prophets. We didn't listen. We broke your law. We neglected the covenant. We rejected you, your prophets, your worship, your judgment, your temple. Everything that you said would happen, happened. And you warned us and gave us opportunities to repent. And we did not listen. And what was the curse what was the curse that you promised us? This is what he says, and he brings up Moses. What's he referring to? He's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15 through 68. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15 through 68. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, God is giving Moses the blessings of keeping the law and the curses of breaking it. What did God say would happen? What is Daniel referring to? Here's 11 things that are said in those verses. God says, if you break the covenant, if you are cursed by the law, you will have disease, drought. You will be defeated by your enemies. You will be insane, blind, confused. You will lose your children. You will have your possessions ravaged. You will have sickness, famine, and you will lose your home. Everything happened. Everything happened. As God said it would happen. What is Daniel saying? God, even in spite of the consequences, we did not listen. We forsook you, your word. We have no excuses, God. None. None. Look at verse 15. In spite of all that, Daniel thinks about the mercies of God. The salvation of God. He knows there was another time that they needed saving. And he says in verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Again, again. And it, what, what is Daniel doing? He, he's not holding it back. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath 
turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for our iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Daniel says, God, we need to be saved again. You have saved us from Egypt. You have delivered us from our enemies in the promised land. And now we have to be saved again because we are captives in Babylon and now Persia. But look at Daniel's focus of his prayer here. Because you and I might approach someone whose mercy we're beholden to. And probably what we would try to do is to convince the judge that, like I said, we've done our time. Have mercy on us. Forgive us. We would do anything we can to get ourselves off the hot seat. Right? Let's get ourselves off the hot seat. Make it, maybe we could bring some evidence of some of the good things we did. Maybe that'll soften the blow a little bit. Maybe that'll lessen the temperature. Maybe that'll lessen the punishment. No. Daniel's prayer doesn't focus on getting himself off the hot seat or his people off the hot seat. Why does Daniel want God to act like he did in Egypt? God, when you saved us from Egypt, you made a name for yourself. That's Daniel's rationale. You made a name for yourself, verse 15. Hmm. What does Daniel want God to do? Daniel wants God to save them again from captivity for his glory. God, glorify yourself. You made a name for yourself in Egypt. Make a name for yourself here again among the nations. You see, true repentance, listen, this is so important. True repentance isn't so you can have fire insurance. If you know what I mean. I think for some people, they think they're a Christian and they're not. They said a little prayer. They repeated the the thing the preacher said. And they said, great, I'm not going to hell. Salvation is not about not going to hell. Salvation is about knowing God and His glory. Salvation is not just being freed from your consequences. It's to be saved to a holy God and made right and brought near to Him for His glory. If your salvation is just about fire insurance or a get-out-of-jail-free card, I think you need a heart check. This is what Daniel's saying here. You made a name for yourself. Oh God, do it again! Don't save us because of us. We're terrible people. We're wicked. We got what we deserve. But God, save us, not because we deserve it or because we've done our time. Do it to make your name great among the peoples. Sin has dragged God's name through the mud. Oh God, glorify yourself. Make your name great by having great mercy on us, even though we have sinned. And friends, that's why we call it amazing grace. Amazing grace. It wouldn't be so amazing if you earned it. It wouldn't be so amazing if you deserved it. 
It wouldn't be so amazing because God had to. And he was obligated. No. It's great because the God of creation glories in himself by saving a people for himself. And he glories in himself by bringing judgment on his enemies and judgment on his people like he did in Judah. God is glorified by everything he does. But now Daniel is saying, don't save us for us. Save us for you. Save us for your glory of your name. I think this is what Paul references in Ephesians chapter 1. Where I'm going to paraphrase it here and give you the PDV version. That's the Pastor Dan version. Where Paul is saying that God has had grace on us. So that in the coming ages. He might display trophies of grace. Who's going to get the glory in heaven? Who's going to get the glory in eternity for saving people like us? Not us. It's for God to display, look what I did and I didn't have to. Look what I did for those people, those rebels, these people who love their sin. Look what I did to glorify my name. I didn't let everyone go to hell. I chose a people for my glory. When we get saved, yeah, me, we don't want to go to hell. We don't want the judgment of God. True. But also, when you glory in your salvation, you are glorying in the grace and mercy of God. Lord, your love is amazing. Your grace is amazing. I'm not the one who looks good in this. You are. You are. So Daniel's saying, God, do it again. For the longer we're in Babylon, your people have become a byword, he says in verse 16. Your people have become a byword among all the people around us. What does the byword mean? It means we become a joke. We, we become a joke. We're like an insult to your name. Why? Because we are a people called by your name. You have made us promises. Your temple is made desolate. There is no temple in Judah at this time. None. God, glorify yourself so that the nations will know that we're still your people. You have saved the remnant and that your house will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Take the glory of your name, which has now been made a joke because of people like us. And turn it into glory so that the nations would be glad and see the God of Israel. Turn your wrath away from us. When people think and say, ha, their God couldn't even save them. Look, their temple's destroyed. They're scattered around like they're nothing. God, glory in your name. That's why you ought to save us. Not for me, but for you. For your namesake. And by the way, I wish we had more time. This is how God operates. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the waters. 
For your namesake. That's what the psalmist says. Why does he do all that? Is it because I'm all that in a bag of chips? No. God, why do you lead me besides the waters? Why do you forgive me of my sin? For your name's sake. God will not let his name be drawn through the mud. This is what Daniel's praying. We got what we deserved. But God, glorify yourself. Verse 17. Therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own name's sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. That's the temple, which is desolate. Verse 18. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Again and again. God, why do I want you to answer my prayer? For your glory. If you're praying, oh God, make me successful. Make me rich and famous. God, do this. God, save me for me. You're the same as Nebuchadnezzar. Full of pride. Whether therefore you eat or drink. Or whatever you do, you do it for all the glory of God. For your namesake. For your namesake, God. Do it. We aren't praying this because we've been good or done our time. We're praying this because we, we don't deserve it. That's why I want you to answer this. What happens? Well, God answered Daniel's prayer. What did God do? He stirred the heart of King Cyrus. And he sends the Jews back to the land. King Cyrus does. God did it through King Cyrus, the Persian king. And he sends them back and he says, yeah, go build your temple again. And you know who pays for it? King Cyrus, Persia. I think Daniel's prayer is the impetus here to... To stir the heart of the king so that God in his sovereignty would even use an enemy nation who destroyed the temple and destroyed Judah to then go rebuild it and to set the Jews back. And he did. They go back and they rebuild the temple. You can read about that in Ezra and Haggai. And then a cupbearer to the king named Nehemiah pleads with the king after that's all being done. He says, hey, we're glad the temple's back, but you know what? The walls are still torn down, O king. Can we do something about that? You got it, Nehemiah. Go rebuild your walls. And what God said to Jeremiah is true. Seventy years, Babylon. But then God raises up Persia to bless his people and send them back home to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. We can learn a lot about prayer from Daniel chapter 9. We can learn about confession and repentance and what it is and what it's not. 
But notice one thing here. How many people are praying this prayer? One. This is not national prayer. This is not all the Jewish people praying. This is one man praying. One person. His name is Daniel. Daniel prayed for an entire group, and God answered him. Daniel prayed and even confessed national sin for God's people. And God heard him. And God answered his prayer. Daniel took on the sins of his people, some of which he did not commit, being a young man. But yet he still included himself in that prayer of confession and repentance. And he took on the sins of his own people. What can we draw from this? Well, I could tell you, oh, pray better. But that's not the point. You know this is going to land somewhere about Jesus, so let me just get to it. Here Judah had one person praying for them, interceding for them, Daniel. But the people of God still have somebody praying for them on their behalf, even when we don't. The people of God still have someone who take the sins of God's people upon himself as if he committed it. His name is Jesus Christ. Yes, friends, our risen king is seated at the right-hand side of God the Father, making continual intercession for us. You know the glory of this day? You want to know something glorious that you can go home? Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for you. What? Yeah. You may say, does anyone know my pain? Does anyone know my heartache? Does anyone care? Yes, his name is Jesus. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is our great high priest. He is the most powerful prayer warrior that has ever lived. And as Daniel prayed for people, I didn't even agree with him. Here, Jesus prays for our God's people today. And this is what the New Testament says. Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There's never been a day in your life where Jesus hasn't prayed for you. Think about that. Who is to condemn, Romans 8, 34? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding. That's continual action. Interceding for us. What is Jesus doing in heaven for 2,000 years, our time? He's praying for us, friends. He's our advocate our Savior, our priest, our Lamb, our temple. We go through Him and to Him. And we have never gone a day unprayed for. You may feel like nobody cares, that nobody understands you. Jesus does. I love what Robert Murray McShane, a 19th century Scottish pastor, once wrote. He writes, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. 
Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. The difference between Daniel and Jesus in this picture is that Daniel had to confess and repent of his own sins. But Jesus has no sin of his own to confess. But he takes on the sins of his people as if they are his own and has made full satisfaction for those sins by dying on the cross as the great propitiation to God, satisfaction to God on our behalf. Think of what God did through the prayer of Daniel, a sinner. What more do you think he'll accomplish through the prayers of the greater Daniel? Jesus, King Jesus, praying for his people. Do you think he's going to lose? I don't think so. Much to learn in this chapter. Much to dwell on this. But remember, worship never ends. So what will you do with what you heard? Let's pray. Oh God, help us today as we think about these principles of repentance and confession and taking ownership of our sin and accountability for our sin. And Lord, the reason we could take such great confidence in doing those things is because we have a Savior. We have a Savior who died for us, who's forgiven us, who has set us free. And then just doesn't leave us alone who has forsaken us. He's never forsaken us. He'll never leave us. And he sits at the right-hand side of the Father making intercession for us. Oh, what a blessed thought that King Jesus prays for us. He prays for us. And because he prays, we know we will win. His prayers are always answered. He gets what he wants. What he wants is the full salvation of his people, the sanctification of his people, the glorification of their bodies when he returns in glory. Thank you. Thank you, God, for this wonderful truth. May you encourage some people who feel alone this morning that Jesus knows and he hears and he cares And he's already prayed for us before anyone has ever prayed or dared to even think about praying for us. We have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, who also prays for us, which groanings which cannot be uttered, even when we don't even know what to pray for. Thank you for this example of Daniel. But as always in Daniel, we just see a type and shadow of a greater Daniel. Let us leave this morning with a greater vision, a greater appreciation, a greater worship of this Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Let's stand this morning and sing a closing song together. May you remember, O Christian, the yes you have sinned this week. For our God is ready to save and ready to forgive. You need to remember the forgiveness that you have in Him already. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. 
but his mercy is more. Let's sing.